2 Corinthians 12, Paul is continuing to address this kind of smaller segment, some, he called them super apostles in the church at the end of this epistle. And he's moving from a lot of sufferings, this kind of list that he laid out, as he says, foolishly boasting, because apparently some of these false apostles and teachers had won the confidence of a segment of the church in Corinth by boasting about themselves and their spiritual credit, and they were knocking Paul in a whole bunch of ways that we've covered. And Paul basically says, okay, uh, I'm, this may seem out of place, but I'm going to boast as well then. But his boasting is to put in contrast, because you can't really call even what he's doing boasting, with the boasting of these false teachers. And he's been doing that through these last couple chapters, and he's going to continue that here, where he says in verse 1, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, and I will come to visions and revelations in the Lord. So he's going to talk about spiritual visions and revelations, spiritual in unique ways revelation given to him, which of course is something that people then boasted about and still do boast about. And Paul is saying, again, this is not profitable for me, but I'm going to talk about it. And it can seem a little bit out of place, but as we read through, you'll see it's still the same context. What Paul does when he does his boasting is Paul shows that weakness and sincerity and humility of heart were necessary for true apostolic ministry. And that was all he could boast in. And then the boasting of these other individuals would be put in perspective in that regard. And he's going to show even in my spiritual revelations that God gave him that were unique, they also came with weakness and suffering and difficulty. Not the type of thing that, that people would typically boast about in relation. So it continues in that context. And again, I just think it's important to note Paul's example here. It would be very easy for Paul to mention all the churches that he personally planted, to lay out his church network that he developed uh, through his ministry, to count the number of salvations per year, to list out all the exciting testimonies of wild conversions, all the witches in Ephesus that threw their magic books together and burnt them. I'm sure he had plenty of things he could have put out there. The effectiveness of his preaching and places that had to close down because they couldn't sell idols anymore. It, it could have been very easy for Paul to step into what we see in our modern day. Much of it is just straight sinful self-promotion and take genuine things and throw them out there to boast in himself. But again, that is not what he is doing. And I think we can just take it for granted. Paul could have easily laid out a list that would impress the modern day Christian in an incredible way. But that's not what he's doing. He's doing the exact opposite. And he's going to continue that focus from the last chapters, which is on the cost, sincerity of heart, and humility required to serve the Lord. So it's in that context that even his spiritual revelations, they fit. They're not related to his personal strength. Even they came with some difficulty. So Again, verse 1, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations in the Lord. I know a man in Christ 
who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So here now, Paul goes into speaking about, he says in verse 2, a man. Uh, Again, we know this is Paul specifically. He goes into verse 7 and says, lest I should be exalted, God gave me these things. He's speaking of himself here. I think the reason he says, I know a man in Christ is because he's emphasizing even in his spiritual revelations and visions, he was more a spectator than a participant. He didn't do something secret to make these things happen. He didn't have some special knowledge that other people didn't have and you could get if you just pay $9.99 a month and then you'll get his updates, right? This isn't, Paul didn't have some secret that these things happened to him. He had supernatural things happen in his life, but it was because God saw fit to make that happen. He, he was just a man that it happened to. And God still does supernatural things. I think it's, we should pray and seek God for supernatural things, but we can't demand them. And when God knows we need the supernatural, he'll send us the supernatural. But if he doesn't need to send an angel, he won't send an angel. So there are plenty of times where God will do these things. And Paul just says, I know a man in Christ because he's emphasizing God's work in this supernatural experience, not his own special part in it. And he says he knows that man. Then he says, 14 years ago. So this experience, particularly that he's thinking of, was 14 years ago. Most people put Paul's salvation about 20 years before this. So it was a few years after he was saved. Uh, The timing of when this happened, six or seven years after his conversion, we're not sure. Uh, Some people tie it to his stoning at Lystra. Maybe, depending on the timing, could work out. It might not. You might be a year or two off in regards to that. Uh, The reality is we don't really know. Um, even if it was in regard to a stoning, the thorn in the flesh, people want to try to tie that there. It doesn't really work with the stoning because he says it's also a messenger of Satan. It was a different type of messenger that brought this to him. So how and when exactly Paul received these visions, the reality is we don't have a great biblical context to nail down. So people want to make their guesses, but we're not sure. Paul just knows 14 years ago this happened. It was something that was very remarkable for him. And Paul tells us that what happened in this event was that he was caught up there. The word caught up in the Greek is harpazos, the same word that's used for the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's to be seized away by something. So Paul says what happened in these revelations, what the experience of them was, was he was caught up by the Lord. And if you're like, what does it mean to be caught up? Well, Paul tells us twice he wasn't sure if he left his body behind or if he was still in it. That's that's what it's like to be caught up. Uh, And now people make all types of guesses as to what was happening there. Um, G. Campbell Morgan in his commentary, the Corinthian letters of Paul, I think he said it best. He said, I remember very well someone asking me in the States, does that mean he was caught up in bodily form? or that his spirit passed on. 
Of course, my reply was, dear friend, how do you suppose I know when Paul tells us twice over he didn't know himself? That's a great commentary there. Yeah, that's the best thing to say. We don't know, right? Paul tells us twice, I don't know. I, I couldn't even tell if literally I, this is just something that happened to me in the spirit or if I was bodily taken somewhere. He, he can't even tell us. But what he does tell us is he was caught up into, he says, the third heaven or into paradise. He's referring to the same place. He's not going to two different places. Even though some people might say one is in the other, like Philadelphia is in Pennsylvania, we're not sure. Paradise, the word gives us the idea of a park or a preserve. The word is used two other times in Scripture, Luke 23, 43, and Revelation 2, 7. In Luke 23, it's where Jesus turns to the thief on the cross and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's our word. And in Revelation, it's a promise that Christ gives to those in the church age. So, uh, you know, what is paradise? Is it in the current heaven? Is it a compartment of the realm of the dead, Sheol, Hades, whatever you want to say? Is it the same place as Abraham's bosom? Can saints still go there? Are they still there? We don't know. <laughs> and Paul wasn't actually even trying to answer those questions. The context here, again, is the weakness in Paul and the cost versus the boasting of these false apostles. So Paul tells us that he had this experience, that it was a supernatural experience. They can't even tell you if he was in his body or not. That he went into a heavenly realm, and then he tells us he heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter, in verse 4. And what did I receive there? Things I can't even tell you. Now, is that because he was told not to tell us? John, in Revelation, there are places where God tells him, seal that up, don't write it. Maybe. Is it just because what he experienced there, he literally couldn't put into words? Possibly. I think we can't discount that. Certainly, Paul would try his best, but uh, it's very hard to describe certain things. Actually, I remember even being in college and friend of mine who was from another part of the world sat down to watch a game of American football with me, which he had never seen before in his life. And it was pretty hard just to explain American football to somebody. Like, what are they doing? Why are they lining up? What is happening? You're like trying to, oh, how do I get this? It's a turn-based game? Like, now it's their turn and now it's our turn, right? Like, if I had a hard time explaining American football to a person, yeah, I could see how Paul says being in the third heaven and hearing expressible words is hard to tell you. So, you know, we don't know exactly what was going on there. The, the whole point is simply this, because people want to get hung up on the speculative there. Here's Paul's point, verses 5 and 6. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears me to be. Paul admits, look, I got plenty to boast in, if I was going to boast, without lying. I, I don't have to embellish my spiritual experience and make it seem crazier than it was. I've had spiritual experience I literally can't even put into words to other people. 
I can't even explain it myself. I'm not even totally sure what happened to me. But he says, but I would be a fool to boast in those things. And in fact, I just want you to measure me by what you see on the external, not anything on the internal. I just want you to see me as I am. You know, we usually want it the other way around. We do things on the external like, oh, I didn't really mean to do that. You know, my heart, I didn't want to say that when we did, <laughs> you know. But Paul, he just says, just see me. That's, that's how I want you to know me. He didn't want anyone pretty remarkable. Here's why I refrain. Lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. He didn't want people to have the wrong positive impression of his personal weakness or ministry. I don't want people thinking I'm more than I really am. Now, that's a sentiment that you don't see in our modern culture very much. We are very happy if people think more of us than we know is true. Right? This is a remarkably humble sentiment. Is this our desire to be known as we are versus mistakenly known as smarter or more spiritual or more holy or more full of character? Right? I mean, we live in a world with very carefully meticulously cultivated personalities. We want everything to be seen in a particular way. And what Paul says is, I actually don't want that. Because he knows, number one, is foolish, and he knows, number two, it gives the wrong impression about what it is to serve the Lord or to be a follower of his. And it harms people in the end, and it doesn't edify them. And so Paul says, there's plenty of things that I could boast about, but I'm not going to boast. I'll boast in my infirmities, in my weakness. And I could tell you things that are totally true, but I will refrain because I don't actually want anybody thinking of me higher than I am. That's what the boasting of the false teachers did. I don't want them to have the wrong impression, even in a positive way, let alone a negative way. We're very worried if people have the wrong negative impression of us. We do not carry that over to the other side. That's what Paul's saying. I don't want people to have that either. It takes away from Christ even more in his glory and who he is. So, he says, lest, verse 7, I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Notice he says that twice. And again, he's making his contrast here with these false teachers. He was given remarkable spiritual revelations from the Lord that he didn't share with anybody else or boast in. And he says God already had to give him a thorn in the flesh to keep him properly humble in relation to those. He says very specifically, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. The word thorn is the idea of a stake. It is literally something physical. Uh, he may have referred to it in his letter to the Galatians. We're not totally sure if it was the same one, but in Galatians 4.14, he says, My trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So apparently Paul had some 
physical issue that God allowed him to have to keep him humble so that he would not be exalted above measure. He says, a thorn in the flesh and the messenger of Satan to buffet him. Now, there's some debate here. Again, different commentators will say different things because the language leaves it open as to whether that is one and the same thing or whether it is two different things. I think in verse 8, Paul makes it clear that it is just one and the same thing because he says this is the thing, this thing, and it versus these things or they. So he refers to it as one right in the next verse. But the bigger part is, Paul says, notice, there was given to me. Given to me. A bodily affliction brought along by the means of some enemy agent in Paul's life was given to him. And Paul did not see it through the secondary means. This was given to him by God. That's what he's saying here. Paul's trying to describe the issue here. He's not giving us all the details. Maybe felt like he didn't need to. Probably the Lord left it this way because he knew it was going to be different in different people's lives. He's not telling us all the specifics of spiritual warfare here. Again, he's saying, God gave me incredible spiritual experience. This is the context. And then the needful humbling to keep me in the proper place for spiritual usefulness. You want to brag about these things? Here's the reality of them. I could boast. I'm not going to boast about this thing. I, I feel the pull to be exalted above measure because of the spiritual revelations God has given me. But anybody who would truly boast in those things, you know what they would have to say? I also feel my weakness. God had to show me my weakness to keep me humble and to keep me from being exalted above measure. Now, I'll say this, suffering and afflictions, they're spoken of in a bunch of different contexts in the scripture. So Paul's going to, again, talk about this here. But keeping the context in perspective is important because every form of suffering or affliction is not the same. The Bible talks about suffering and affliction as an effect of sin. There's suffering and afflictions just because of sin in our world in general. Suffering and affliction that is a witness to the world. Suffering and affliction that glorifies God in his plan. God chooses suffering and affliction as his ministry in the world because it's in accordance with his nature where hate and violence is not. God uses it as a tool to conform us in his image and likeness, as he talks about here. In the context of Job, it was one thing. In the context of Joseph, it was something else. You could go through the scripture. There's a different context to suffering and affliction and what it might do in our lives. But here, in verse 7, twice Paul says, lest I be exalted. That's the context here. He felt that pull, and God used this thorn, if you would, to clip his wings so he wouldn't fly too high. And suffering like this is a mercy given by God, no matter what agent he uses to bring it into our lives. C.S. Lewis, <clears throat> in his book, A Grief Observed, would say this, The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there is any use in begging for tenderness. 
A cruel man might be bribed, might grow tired of his vile sport, might have a temporary fit of mercy, as alcoholics have temporary fits of sobriety. But suppose you are up against a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. But is it credible that such extremities of torture should be necessary for us? Well, take your choice. The tortures occur. If they are unnecessary, then there is no God or there's a bad one. If there's a good God, then these tortures are necessary. For no even moderately good being could possibly inflict or permit them if they weren't. Either way, we're for it. How do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never been to a dentist? And no offense to dentists, it's just the idea is any doctor, right? The, the point he's making is, if a doctor knows a cancer is going to kill you, he's going to cut as deep as he needs to go to remove that cancer because he is good. His goodness makes him thorough. That's his point. And that is necessary to preserve life. And he says if God is good, then he will be thorough and do what he has to do to preserve our lives. Sometimes we can feel like we're more merciful, maybe, than God is, or we don't understand why he would do what he's doing. He goes on, he says, yet this is unendurable. And then one babbles, if only I could bear it, or the worst of it, or any of it, instead of her. But one can't tell how serious that bit is, for nothing is staked on it. If it suddenly became a real possibility, then for the first time we should discover how seriously we had meant it. It's very easy to say, oh, I wish that was... I could take that suffering on. But he says, nobody can actually do that. But then he says this, is it ever allowed? It was allowed to one, we are told. And I find I can now believe again that he has done vicariously whatever can so be done. He replies to our babble, you cannot and you dare not, but I could and dared. There is one who can take it, all the suffering, to deal with it fully, to have an answer to it, ultimately. And that's the Lord. And that's the one that we're trusting in this scenario. And that's why Paul, who knows that Lord, can say, there was given to me. And he doesn't go rebuking Satan or casting out demons even if there was a messenger of the enemy that brought it about, because he knows his life is in his Lord's hands. And the work of God as the good physician, the great physician, is how Paul is speaking of his suffering here. That's the context. As a merciful act of God in his life, to cut out evil and to preserve good. That's why he goes to God in prayer. Notice, he says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul comes now and asks the Lord to remove his suffering. That's okay. If we find suffering in this world, we should go to God. We should pray. We can ask him to remove those things. 
the use of suffering in this world as a scalpel to remove the things that are harmful to us is temporary. One day, because God is good, he's going to put that scalpel down because there's going to be no more sin to deal with, and he will have fully preserved life. But here and now, in the world we live in, if God never used this tool, we would be very spoiled, selfish, selfish, cruel individuals. He uses it where it is necessary. I think the question becomes, okay, how much suffering do I really need in life then? <laughs> Even if we can logically say, okay, I get what you're saying, but I don't want to enjoy that. Well, you don't have to. I think that's what this teaches us, right? Paul prays and asks the Lord to take it away. That's fine. But if you ask in the end how much, the reality is, who else can actually answer that question but God alone? Who has enough wisdom? Who has enough power? And nobody suffers alone. It's all intertwined in life. Who can balance the whole plan out? He's the only one that we can trust. And at least I know, as C.S. Lewis said at the end of that, the person that I trust that guides the hand of my suffering in this life is the one I see suffering on a cross, and nothing will come to me outside of his character. If I don't have God, I don't have that hope. It's not as if we escape suffering in the world. That's why C.S. Lewis said, even if you don't believe in God or you believe in a bad God, you're in for it either way. Nobody escapes it. It's not like the atheist all of a sudden has a better answer. You have no answer. Christian has an answer. You might not like it, <laughs> but it actually becomes a comforting answer to know, okay, the only harm that's going to come to me is the harm that my Lord allows. And I can ask him. Paul pleads with the Lord three times to remove this thing. We don't hunt for suffering. It comes as God sees fit. You don't have to search for it. You seek God's mercy. I will also just say here, it is obvious there's no biblical truth to the health and wealth doctrine. This is Paul the Apostle. You didn't have more faith than him. This gets out there. God will always heal a person or always keep them from suffering. That's nowhere in the scripture. Paul is saying the exact opposite here. The person who faced the most suffering on the face of this earth is Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, who had no sin in his life. So, there's no health and wealth doctrine here. We're going to face different levels of difficulty. The last thing I'll, I'll say is, and this should be encouraging, suffering doesn't make us second-class or rebellious Christians necessarily. Just because I face suffering, Paul was not facing the suffering because he was rebellious. It was because he was obedient and he wanted to serve the Lord. And God was graciously keeping in a position where he could continue to do that. And that's why we're going to see here Paul surrenders to God's work and becomes fine with it, actually. It doesn't ruin his life or discourage him. He is bringing it up in context as a clear contrast to the type of false preaching that was out there that was coming to Corinth that had nothing of this in it. All they had was health and wealth. All they had was spiritual revelation. All they had was money and wealth. And what Paul says is, I can talk about real works from God, but I can also talk about weakness and infirmity and hardship. 
and the things that God had to do in my own life. So he pleads with them three times that it might depart with me. Uh, some people are, a lot of questions about the significance, why three times is related to Jesus. Was, is that how much I'm supposed to pray for something three times and then stop? I, I really don't think that's what we see here. I think the only significance is after the third time the Lord answered him. I think that's really the only significance. Paul probably would have kept praying for this. But what he says is, verse 9, and he said to me. So after the third time, apparently, God spoke to Paul. He gave him a direct answer. And then Paul didn't need to pray about it anymore. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's prayer was answered by a word from the Lord. I think that's important. He said to me. God doesn't use this type of suffering in our lives to discourage us. If you're sitting here afraid, like, ooh, you know, I'd be nervous to go to the doctor and wonder what they're going to prescribe for me or what type of treatment that's going to look like. That makes me nervous to think of God like that. Well, God doesn't use this type of suffering to discourage us or destroy us. He knows what we need to hear, and he knows how and when to say it. Scripture says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. doesn't force us into these things in a way that we're fearful or they tear us down. God will speak to us personally in the middle of it. And that's really what you need if you've been in suffering or hardship or in positions of difficulty. It's wonderful to have people around us and encourage us. But the thing that means the most is when the Lord says something to you. And when he lets you know that he's there, then you can say, okay, that's what I needed. I needed to hear from you. Dalimore, Arnold Dalimore, in his book, Spurgeon, a biography, speaking of Spurgeon, Spurgeon said this, gentlemen, there are many passages of scripture which you will never understand thoroughly until some trying or singular experience shall interpret them to you. The other evening I was riding home after a heavy day's work, and I felt very wearied and sore and depressed. Spurgeon struggled with depression often, and he had various health issues. When swiftly and suddenly that text came to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. I reached home, and I looked it up in the original, and at last it came to me in this way. My grace is sufficient for, he emphasizes, thee, for you. And I said... I should think it is, Lord. And I burst out laughing. <laughs> it seemed to make unbelief look so absurd. Oh, brethren, be great believers. Little faith will bring your souls to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your souls. Right? Spurgeon says, that's what I needed. He said it to me. He said it to me. I needed the Lord to speak to me. And Paul says, this is what was going on. And I asked the Lord three times to take it away. And then he spoke to me. And this is what he said. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul needed a word from the Lord. My strength is made perfect 
in weakness. This verse has encouraged countless believers in countless cultures for thousands of years. This truth of who God is. God's word to Paul was a promise, and it remains so for us today. The, the sufficiency of God's grace is not a hope. Do you notice that? It's a fact. God states it. It's what overcame Spurgeon. I should think it is, Lord. To recognize that it was foolish to believe otherwise. So, first... God's grace made the removal of Paul's thorn needless. And second, God's strength made the weakness he felt beneficial. The issue was solved. The issue was solved for Paul. What will it mean to have God's grace sufficient for our personal suffering? Well, what it will mean is, even if the circumstance doesn't immediately change, the issue is solved. Does that make sense? Paul said things were resolved between me and God. I was asking him to remove it. Things were not resolved. But then he spoke to me, and I knew his grace was sufficient for me, and that his strength would be made perfect in my weakness. And now the issue is solved. There's no issue there anymore. There was no struggle there anymore. And can I just add here that you don't, truly have the victory, as Paul does, if you don't have that yet, then keep praying and ask God to deliver you or ask him for grace. Say, Lord, you know my scenario. I ask for your mercy and deliverance, which he does. He does deliver sometimes. And then sometimes he speaks to you and says, my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes his strength will just be made perfect in your weakness. You'll know when to stop, when he speaks to you, when he meets you on one of those levels. What did it look like for Paul then? Well, notice gladness. Verse 9, therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul wasn't walking around miserable saying, oh, God keeps stabbing me with this stake. Demon stake over my life, right? Miserable. That's actually nothing of what is happening here. He's admitting there is a reality of the difficulty, but he says God's grace was stronger. It was sufficient. The issue was solved. And I will therefore gladly boast in my infirmities. A joyful acceptance of, notice, a list he goes, Verse 10, infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses. This lesson taught him to see God in all these various difficult things that happened in his life. He was talking about a specific thing related to his spiritual revelations, particularly from 14 years ago. But now he just talks about how that led him through the rest of his life. That even when I found other difficult things, I found God's grace and his strength. And he says, the power of Christ to rest upon me. That word rest there has the idea of pitching a tent upon. Paul's victory over his thorn was in the fact that his weakness and his needs made him a literal dwelling place for God. God showed continually his power in my life. Now, these sound like, again, Christian-y terms and words. And if you're like, do I have that? Then you probably don't. Keep asking for him. 
But the reality is there are many who can testify, and I'm sure, of this exact experience in their lives where they see God's strength being brought out of their own weaknesses in life. And this is where you come to many of those situations when it's learned in personal weakness. You hear people say stuff, even though they've gone through difficulty, like, I wouldn't change a thing. Why not? Well, because they would never surrender what they received of the Lord in the middle of those things. Is the suffering scary in some ways? Was it difficult? Well, yes. But would you remove the suffering and then also what you found of God in the middle of that? No. I wouldn't change a thing. I think if you ask Paul, would you change that? Paul would said, I wouldn't change a thing because God's grace is sufficient for me. His power literally rested upon me. For, I think this is important, at the end of 10 there, for Christ's sake. Again, that's an important context. Paul is talking about the context of ministry here, of serving the Lord. This doesn't happen the same way when we're in it for ourselves or when we're living for sinful motives. Paul says, I experienced this for Christ's sake, in his service, in following after him. The power of Christ rested on him. Well, power to do what? Not obviously just be healed himself or cast out whatever demonic presence this was. What was the power? Well, the power was to live and obey and suffer and serve as salt and light joyfully in the world to faithfully continue to do the thing that God called him to do, to walk with God in the middle of all of it in gladness and joy and the sufficiency of God's grace. That's what it looked like. And it looked like a whole lot of other things then in Paul's life. And Paul just continued to see that in all the various aspects, which is why he gives that whole list. And I would encourage you, God brings these types of things into our lives in a whole lot of different ways. So when you find yourself in the middle of daily life, God has a good way of not letting us escape. He keeps grinding us down in little ways, using life as a file to conform us into his image and likeness. We'd, we'd much rather have one big spiritual thing happen and give like, you know, one big sacrifice and then be able to live for ourselves for two years or something like that. And instead, just God makes little annoying things constantly happen to you all day so that your flesh can't actually survive, right? And usually this is what he does. Uh, most of us aren't really going to have probably something as huge as Paul because we don't have that first big experience. We don't have that same calling. But in some ways, he does this for all of us. And maybe I begin to see those things that happen in life at home or at work as opportunities to humble myself to receive more of God's grace, to be surrendered to him, to not allow your flesh to take that breath, but to continue to give yourself to him and have the power of Christ rest on you in a personal way. Now, Paul says this as he goes on, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you 
For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, uses that same word used earlier, the super apostles, these false teachers, though I am nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Paul basically, after he's done here, reproves these Corinthians saying, you, you, I, I'm, in, I'm a fool doing this. Like, this is dumb, <laughs> even having to speak this way. But you've compelled me. I should have been commended by you if anybody knew that I was an apostle. And he said, all the works of an apostle were done among you. Signs, wonders, the work of God was evident. Their salvation was directly related to God's work through this individual. Paul says, if anybody should have known that I was an apostle, it would have been you. You should have known. I should have been commended by you. I should have actually been defended by you. But instead of defending him, they doubted him. They questioned him. They slandered him. And he said, if there's anything that even you accuse me of that could be true in 13, how were you different than other churches or inferior to other churches? He said, yeah, I supported myself. I didn't accept money from you. And if I wronged you in that way, forgive me this wrong. I didn't want to be a burden to you. If there's, a, if there's an, a, uh, an accusation that could stick, that was the one, in essence, he's kind of admitting here. But he says now, verse 14, For the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Paul says now for the third time, there's a little debate as to whether this is actually Paul's second or third visit to Corinth. Um, the question being when Paul says for the third time, is it connected with the ready or is it connected to the come? So if it's connected to the ready, what he's saying is for the third time now, I'm preparing to come to you. Uh, if it's connected to the come, then he's going to say, this is my literal third visit. Uh, really kind of either work. Probably the plainest sense is the best. It's likely Paul's third trip to Corinth, although we don't have his second recorded then. But it's one of those things that people argue about that's dumb. So I just referred to it. Now, as he goes on here, the important part, uh, you uh, you really get to see his heart, a remarkable glimpse into his heart for these people. He says, I'm not going to be burdensome to you. I do not seek yours but you. And he gives this example now saying the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Paul is coming to love them. He doesn't want anything from them. He's not trying to get something from the Corinthians. He is coming to give. And he uses that example here of a giving love. And 15 again says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Sadly, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. And this man, Paul, refuses to love them, love them in any way that actually harms them, which is not what the false teachers would do. They were free and okay with loving them in a way that harms them. 
there's a lot of courage in this. Certainly in our day, we need more people that are willing to love other individuals, even if they know they will be loved less for it. There is a lot in our world that if you step up and say the truth, which is what people need, they will love you less for it. And we're supposed to speak the truth in love. We're not supposed to be jerks. Uh, but again, anything, any religious confidence is essentially just called bigotry by people who have no religious confidence. When you speak the truth, people don't always like it. But we're called to speak the truth in love. And there are many grandparents and parents who stand for the truth. And then when somebody they love gets involved in things that are not true, they give up the truth because they're afraid they'll be loved less if they speak the truth. Many friends in scenarios just like that. Paul says, I'll be spent for you. I don't seek anything from you, I seek yours. And I will love you even though the more I love you, I am loved less for it. That's how I'll love you. He's never going to change that. Paul's love was not needy. His love was freely given, without strings attached, without payback, without reciprocation. He uses that illustration of correct parental love that doesn't seek anything from the kids, but simply relationships. I don't seek yours. I seek you. I'm not showing up hoping you'll give me anything. I just want a relationship with you. And that's what it's supposed to be. Matthew 5, Jesus would say, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Paul's not just talking about inheritance here, right? Some kids are in the room like, yeah, mom and dad, save up for me. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul had nothing really monetary even to give. What he gave was his life. What he gave was what these individuals need. Love, truth, teaching, reproof, fellowship, the things that they really needed. It's a travesty for a parent to only love a child or a difficult child if that child is first loving to them. We understand the more mature person should take the lead in that. This is what Paul is speaking about as a believer. If, if that happens, then we understand there's something lacking in that adult's love. And sadly, we see that all over the world. But what Paul is saying here is... I am going to gladly spend and be spent for you. I'm going to love you the way that I know is true and right before the Lord. And if you love me less for it, then so be it. He's willing to do that in the right way. Neediness and love always taints the relationship. We all know somebody, probably many of you received the gift this year, that has strings attached to that gift. You're going to have to put it up in your house when that person comes over, or you're going to have to act like you like it, or in some way, right, the person's like, I love you, here, take this, and now you're like, Ugh, I have to do something with this. That's not real love. That's neediness. So real love is given free. And whenever that neediness comes in, it begins to taint the relationship. If it's a relationship between a parent or a spouse or a friend, that need love no longer does what's best for others, it does what's best for itself. We're all needy, though. And in some ways, at some point, 
all of our love runs out. We can all only freely love so far. There is only one person who can ever freely love all the time. That's God, because God's perfect. Because God actually has no needs. So his love is always 100% free, freely given, freely offered. He won't love us in a way that hurts us. He can't do that. But his love, his true love, is always freely given. And even our sins and our issues don't cause his love to cool in his heart toward us, just like Paul's love didn't cool based on their reciprocation. He could still give. <clears throat> Malcolm Muggridge, who was something of a Christian apologist, made a comment. He said, one of the good things about being older is he says, I can now love more freely. When I was young, I still cared about reputation, still cared about the things that might happen in a relationship with somebody, maybe how I could network with them, maybe something I might receive from them, maybe the crowd I was in. But he said, now that I've gotten older, he said, I don't care about any of those things. I can love more freely now. And God, his type of love, when we have a mature love for other individuals, it begins to look like this. It begins to look like this, free. And Paul can say, I'll gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Even though the more I love you, the less I'm loved. He would continue on that path. Not something you would hear those false teachers say. You cross them, you get a very different response. Now, 16. He says, be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? It seems here um, that Paul was being accused of being crafty, and he's bringing that up uh, ironically, the idea being, again, I wasn't a burden financially to you. And he's saying, did I catch you by craftiness? And it seems like the accusation was, the false teachers were saying, well, Paul might not accept your money, but when he sends Titus and the other guys here, they're going to take the money and give it to Paul. So he won't take it himself, but he'll take it through these other people. He's crafty, kind of sneaky. And what Paul says is, well, I guess I caught you by cunning, even though I was never a burden to you. Again, did I take advantage of you? Did, did I take advantage of anybody when I was there? And he says, what about those I sent to you? I urged Titus. I sent him and our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? If this accusation is true, did either of these guys take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Paul rebukes the, these false accusations by their Christian example. You saw the way I lived was the way these other individuals lived. This wasn't just a Paul the Apostle thing. This, this was the other guys who served in them. We're all in step here. You saw a similar life and ministry and Christ-like love and patience and interaction here. None of them were profiting. None of them were out to get something from them. They just cared for them. They wanted them. They didn't want theirs. 
And Paul said, you saw that all through. You know, here, the pastoral ministry, that's how it should be. The, the way one person ministers is the way the other people minister. You know, it's not like you come to me and I'll do believer's baptism, but if you really want your infant baptized, you got to go to Brian. He's the only one who does that, right? Or, you know, somebody, you know, one pastor, I don't believe you can be demon-possessed, but Jerry does, so he'll cast out the demon if you're a believer and you're demon. Like that, right? The, we're all walking in the same stuff. There's the same life and ministry that you see here that, that gets lived out. And, you know, sometimes we'll have individuals that go to one pastor, don't like what they hear there, and they're like, well, what would this other pastor say? I'm like, well, the same thing. <laughs> So that, that should be as it is. That Paul says, that's what you saw. You saw the same life, the same spirit being lived out. Verse 19, again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? The idea is, Paul's saying, do you think that I'm self-defending? Is this written in personal self-defense? Is that why I'm writing these things to you? It's not at all. He says, we speak before God in Christ. We do all things, notice, beloved for your edification. Paul's saying, I'm not writing this in self-defense. I'm writing this letter because you Corinthians need to be able to see the difference between godly, minister by, godly ministry by real apostles in contrast to ungodly ministry by false apostles. That's why I'm writing this, for your edification. You need to know this. They need to be able to recognize these things. Notice, and I love that he throws in there, beloved. Again, their failings, even their slander toward him personally, hadn't changed his heart of love toward them one bit. He was still patient. He was the parent. They were the kids. I'm not here to get something from you. And I'm going to be patient with you. You're growing in Christ. And I understand that. And he was going to continue to love them and faithfully be there in their lives. Although he wasn't going to show up just as buddy-buddy. He was going to show up as an apostle doing what the Lord wanted him to. So even though he was doing everything for their edification, he says this in verse 20. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish. And that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. <laughs> Look, hey guys, I'm going to admit, there's, there's a fear. I fear discovering clashing realities when we show up. That I'm not who you want me to be, and you're not where I want you to be. That there's, there's going to be some conflict, and Paul didn't want that. Notice he says, Here's the conflict he's afraid of. Lest there be, and many of these things relate to his earlier letter, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Of course, those things would all tie together. Selfish ambitions, backbiting, whisperings, conceits, tumults, all of these kind of divisive issues, people talking, backbiting, slandering working their little factions within the church. Lest, he says in verse 21, when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and not repented of their uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness, which they have practiced. Paul says, I am afraid I'm going to show up, and you're not going to find me as you want me to be. I'm going to be bold to deal with unrepentant sin in the church. 
and you're not going to be happy about that. And even though it's the loving thing to do, I'll be loved less for it. And, you know, there's a lot of glamorous things in ministry that people like to think about. This is the less glamorous part, and it is the real ministry part. The Bible says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering. That's a minister's job. And Paul says, if I show up and these things are still happening, I'll be humbled among you. He said in chapter 1, verse 23, he said, Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Part of the reason he waited after writing that first letter is he wanted them to have time to repent. He corrected all these types of attitudes, these divisions, the particular sexual sin that was happening in the church, the various things in people's marriages, how they're using spiritual gifts, the abuse of communion and drunkenness. He wrote all these things to them, and he said, I, I waited, I didn't come right away to spare you. And here he's saying, when I come, the idea is he's no longer going to spare. He's going to deal with these situations. Now, we don't, again, all know what that looked like. Of course, we know church discipline was part of it, because he brought that up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And again, I think it's very important that the apostles dealt differently with sin inside the church than sin outside the church. A person who claims to be in a believer that is in unrepentant sin in the church is dealt differently than a person who's outside the church who doesn't claim to be saved. And Paul went through that whole thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with them. So Paul is saying, I'll be humbled if I have to come and that's where I have to stand or where I have to be. And these are the things that are continuing to happen in the church, mostly out of the ministry of these false teachers. And those who have not repented, who have sinned before, so that sin has been addressed, and have not repented of their, he uses three words, uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness, which they have practiced. So uncleanness has the idea of all types of sexual interaction outside of marriage. Again, not just intercourse. Sometimes people say stupid stuff in our world. Well, we didn't actually have sex. I don't have to explain the whole thing, right? I think you understand. It's the Bible uses the word. You're like, where does the Bible talk about that? Well, here it is. Uncleanness. That's what it is. Sexual interaction outside of marriage and outside of intercourse. Fornication is all forms of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. So, Fornication relates to the word that was used from Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18 was that old Hebrew kind of layout of sexuality that was displeasing to God. And fornication was the Greek word that just described that nature. It included heterosexual sin outside of marriage, sex outside of marriage. It included homosexual sex. It included bestiality. It included incest. It included just about everything you can think about. And Paul said, those things are sin. If people are involved in fornication, somebody says, the Bible doesn't talk about homosexuals. Fornication is the word. It's sex outside of marriage. That's what it covers. Any type of act in that regard. And then lewdness is kind of the next level. And it is that unbridled lust that ignores all decency and really all created order. It's that sexuality 
out of bounds. And yes, God has laid out boundaries as believers. We recognize that. And even in our culture, we still realize that there are places that are out of bounds for sexuality. Uh, Those bounds are being pressed further and further in the world we live in. But uh, there are people who begin to give into their sexual nature. And then it's not just having sex anymore. It is the desire that takes them to places that we know are just wicked. And those are the types of things that we have no need to talk about here. Paul says these things are being practiced in the church. It isn't just hearsay. These things were happening. And what he says is they've been addressed. And if they are unrepented of, if a person says, well, I don't care, I'm just going to continue in this, then Paul says, I'm going to step in and be humbled and have to deal with that. Because it is not in line with the love of Christ or the truth of Christ in the church. As it is here, if a person is in sin, they can repent. And as Paul said earlier in this letter, a guy who was in sexual sin with his stepmom, he repented. Paul said, bring him back to the church. Bring him back in. Repentant believers are always welcome in the church. It's the unrepentant that Paul says, I'm going to be humbled to then have to deal with. And again, it's not just sexual sin. Notice the list of all those other things that we could pass by and act like they're not that big. Paul also said, I'll have to deal with those things too. Uh, The person who is divisive can also find themselves whispering, backbiting, jealousy, contentions. Those things are all a part of it as well. So the, the boasting that Paul has laid out in this chapter, the whole point is, is supposed to look totally opposite of what these false teachers would be boasting about. And God was gracious to meet Paul in the middle of not only his sufferings, but his costly love toward believers that wasn't reciprocated. God's grace met him in both those places. And he was happy to have the power of God rest upon him, even being humbled in both those scenarios. So let's stand. We're going to pray. Both of them important for us to know, because at some point in life, if you're not there tonight, you'll be in one of those scenarios. And to know that the Lord's grace is there for you either way is important. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that our sufficiency is not of ourselves. That your grace is sufficient for us and your power can rest on our weakness. And that your love doesn't run dry. And we pray, Lord that you would conform us into your image and likeness in those areas. Lord, I do pray particularly for anybody that's here tonight. You have them here because you knew they needed to hear your promise of your grace, that you would strengthen them. Lord, we want to lift that brother or that sister up to you. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to them what you know they need to hear from you. And Heavenly Father, I do ask for all of us, that you would allow us, Lord, to love those that you've placed around us with your love, that you would shed your love abroad in our hearts by your Holy Ghost. 
and that you would give us the type of selfless love, Lord, that you have and that you worked in the heart of this remarkable apostle. So we commit ourselves to you. You know what that looks like in each of our lives individually. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.